Welcome to this limited series podcast called Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. I'm Holly Clark with my co-host Ken Shelton, and we're looking at lessons learned and those lessons we can use to transform education in the future. So let's jump into the conversation. Welcome back to our final episode around what's next. We've done teaching and learning in the pandemic, and now what can we expect and should we expect to see in our classrooms? I'm Holly Clark, and I'm joined with my two co-hosts, Ken Shelton and Nadia Razzi. Woohoo! This is an important episode. I'm looking forward to us sharing with everyone what's next, how to get into using the words of the late John Lewis, good trouble. And how might we imagine things being different when it comes to our learning spaces? And Nadia, I'm so glad you're here with us again. Well, you know, I love making good trouble, so I'm ready. And you know what good trouble looks like to me, you guys in the classroom? It's many things, and we're going to talk about them today. But the first one to me is around understanding that we have to change some of the ways we do things in classrooms. And that starts first and foremost with looking at digital tools. One of the things we've all learned in our teaching programs is the idea of pedagogy. And pedagogy is the the science behind how people learn. So if we look at digital pedagogies and we really think about what that is, digital pedagogy is actually the method and practice of teaching that takes into account how the purposeful use of these digital tools can increase student engagement, empower students, and create more powerful learning experiences. And this is super important because we can't have done them in the pandemic and then forget about them as we head back into schools. We've gone from analog to digital, and now we've got to stay. Right. And the same can be said for equity in that we now are acknowledging that all of these equitable gaps are in our education that have always been there, but now they've been pushed to the forefront of our mind. We can't go back to just pretending that those inequities are not present anymore. And Holly, I think you bring up a really critical point for the listeners to consider. The questions I would ask is, where were you prior to the pandemic in your use of technology, your access to technology, and really how you were not just using it, but what kind of access was provided for student learning? And I think the other thing for us to all consider is not just the use of the technology tools themselves, but what was the content that you were accessing and what type of learning experience were students having around that? And I know, Nadia, you we had a conversation prior to recording where you brought up a really critical component for educators to consider, for actually really all of us to consider, and that we cannot go back to was our antiquated ways in which we assess student learning and more specifically the way we grade student learning. Can you share for the audience, because Holly and I had the privilege of listening to it, but we thought it was so important. We need to include it in this episode. Can you share a little bit more detail aligned with what's next? What's next when it comes to grading and assessment? Well, I hope that we are able to start, um, in some cases, continue the conversation about standards-based grading and assessment and kind of tie it back to this idea that the way that we have been assessing students, grading them, and the curriculum, all of these aspects of our education are so rooted in this dominant culture. And standards-based grading really shifts the focus 
to stripping away the indicators of that dominant culture, of the culture of racism in our schools. And all of those pieces, behavior, you know, grading students on if they're behaving well in class, if they come to class on time, if they turn in their work on time, are they participating? Do they know how to memorize? All of those indicators of that dominant culture, stripping all of that away and really focusing on student proficiency, I'm not going to say mastery, proficiency of the standards, and really focusing on the improvement. Um, where were they in the beginning of the year? And do they have that, like you said, I think earlier, journey of the student and, and the improvement of interacting with the material and not just grading them on how they behave in our classroom and how we think that we're preparing them for what's going to come next. So that idea of we have no idea what's going to come next. So that's why we need to embrace these decolonizing practices, stripping away these ideas of white supremacy in our school and really focusing with a student centered um, focus as we go forward. So I want to say something about that student centered focus and student centered assessment is what's really really meaningful to me. And it's what I'm going to be talking about probably the most in 2021, because if we look at standards-based grading and we sit down as a team of, you know, I teach English, as a team of English teachers, these five or 10 standards are what is most important. And we don't get into the minutia of a kid didn't turn in this one assignment or do this one thing and they were late. And we look at the whole picture and say, but they learned these 10 you know, kind of power standards that we think are important. We don't have to have that deficit language that Ken kind of coined in an earlier episode of this. We're not looking for the deficit. We're looking for the whole picture. And so I think as we move into 2021, we really have to stop for a second, even if we only do it in our own classroom and begin the journey into standards-based grading. And there are places you can go to learn more about it. You can buy books. You can go to Edutopia, which has a great series on on it. And people on Twitter, if you happen to be a teacher who's on Twitter, are talking about it a lot. Nadia, where did you find all your information around standards-based grading? So as a high school teacher, you could start. I looked around. I looked a lot on Twitter, just like the the sources that you mentioned, Edutopia, Teaching Tolerance, all of the kind of sources that I usually use to infuse in my teaching. And I wasn't able to find something that I thought would really work for me in my classroom. And I, I'm sure you're going to be shocked to hear this, but I kind of developed my own system that I'm still tweaking and working on throughout the year. Uh, but, but there are so many models that you can look at and see where can I start and kind of get your head around it. Like I said in the last episode that I was on, it took me a long time to decide to do it and also to try to think about how this would work for my class and in the context of my school. So it I don't think that there's a wrong way to do it as long as your intentions are to go in and really focus on student improvement and learning rather than what we've always been assessing. So that episode that you're talking about is episode six, if anyone wants to listen to that particular episode. And what standards-based grading does is it allows us to focus in on the whole and not the, the minutia of the little things that kids are not doing. And that's where we can get really bogged down in some of the details that aren't best for kids. Nadia brings up another critical point for us to consider here, which I actually, one of my we're mentioning what's next. One of my goals is to do a better job of writing 
in 2021, and I'm going to work on a blog posting essay series with Nadia. I can't wait. Holly will be recruited as well on grading. Because here's the thing about this for everyone listening to be mindful of. Standards-based grading serves all the purposes and positives that Nadia just shared and Holly just shared. But one of the other things that it also does is it starts to strip away any cultural influence or dominant culture context on how grading is assigned. So, for example, any type of grading that includes student behavior needs to be eliminated. In fact, I still even wonder why report cards have a citizenship mark. What is the point of having that? And when you focus on the learning, what are the learning outcomes that I'm looking for? What is the necessary representations of that learning? Going back to Holly's reference around reimagining assessment, you see how this is all, for, for the listeners, what we're doing is we're actually putting together a whole quilt of what's next, and each component of what we're sharing is like a thread to that quilt. When you really start to scrutinize grading and ask yourself all of the following questions, why do we have to follow a scale that 0 to 59 is an F, 60 to 69 a D, a D, and so on and so forth? What components of my grading are a direct result of student work or include my assessment of the student's behaviors and actions? We have to eliminate all of those things and ask yourself, what am I grading? How am I grading it? And why am I assigning a particular arbitrary number or letter to it? When you start to examine those things and examine your own biases that play a role in that, that is how you can get to more of a standardized grading procedures and make your classroom and learning more equitable for your students. In fact, I will include a link in the essay series that we will co-author that there has been peer-reviewed published research that supports standards-based grading that he also eliminates any type of cultural influence and bias in that grading. And that kind of ties in with the decolonization of the curriculum, which I know Nadia is going to share a little bit about as well, because I think it all fits. So Ken, I'm glad you talk about the decolonization of the curriculum because there's a lot of teachers trying to make change right now. And I'm finding that this has happened in a class that I've been working with. Um, a teacher, the teacher often says, I need to get grades in the grade book because of the parents. The parents want to see grades. And so when we start to make those changes, it's often the parents who aren't trying to be the foes in the change, but often are because they don't understand why we would want to switch to standards-based grading. And I know that we were talking earlier about San Diego Unified, and we've talked about San Diego Unified a lot in our podcast. They probably have no idea. I never even taught at San Diego Unified. I just happened to live in the district. And they're trying to go to standards-based grading by 2022. And you guessed it. Guess who's complaining? The parents. And so that's often something that keeps us from being able to make change. And teachers who think that they have to get those grades in the grade book, I hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you switch, it's a different process. It looks different. And here comes the uncomfortable squad who wants to complain that it looks different than it did when they were a kid. Well, I think exactly what you said is that they don't understand. 
right? And a lot of this standards-based grading that I was developing in the beginning of the year, I made sure that I wanted to explain it as best I could. I recorded myself explaining it several times. I created documents that have all of the pieces explained. And still, I'm getting a lot of confusion from parents in that if I'm... So here's here's how the, the scoring works for my version. Every assignment or every activity... You can either get a zero, which means that you didn't attempt it. If you attempted it but still need some more work on the standards, they get a one. If you understand the standard, you have proficiency in the material ready to move on, then you can get a two. And then next semester, actually, I'm going to introduce a three, which is I can do it every single time. Um, So as of right now, first semester, everything was out of two points. And if a student gets a one on it, then I've gotten a lot of feedback from parents saying it's not fair that they it's only out of two. And if they get a one on it, that means that they got an F. And I have to come back and say, that's not what it means. This is a completely different system. It looks, you know, if I were to put it online and say you got a one out of two, that shows up as a 50%. But that's not what the standard is. So the tools that we have for us to post grades online, even Google Classroom, it's going to look, right, it's going to look like kids are failing when that's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do. So it's been very difficult uh, to get the parents on board. I've been getting a lot of questions from administration asking me, okay, so are you going to drop these assignments for them? Or, okay, does this mean that the student has an F? And I have to keep saying, no, that's not what it means. Right now, they don't have an F they have an incomplete, they still have the opportunity to, to show me that they know the material. So there's been a lot of, um, it's, it's been a little rough to have to explain over and over again what I'm doing. Um, but I think that, like I said in the last episode that I was on, if, you know, now is the time. If I'm going to do it at any time, this is the time that I'm going to do it. So. Sounds like uh, John Lewis would say you're getting in a lot of good trouble. You bring up very critical points, Nadia. One is the mindset of that scale that I mentioned before. Zero to 59 is an F, 60 to 69 is a D, 70 to 79 is C, so on and so forth. The first thing is communicating to the parents that that scale is not is out the window. When you go to standards-based grading, you don't use that scale at all. And there's other critical components to communicate to not just other educators, but the parents when it comes to standards-based grading. And they're ultimately all of the following are a component of a standards-based grading policy, protocols, and practice. One, educators use multiple means to assess quote-unquote mastery. So this goes back to Holly's statement early in this episode around digital pedagogy and reimagining and reexamining assessment. So what are the multiple ways in which you assess student mm-hmm. learning? If you're still doing multiple choice, it's time to get rid of multiple choice. That's already been proven through research that it does not truly assess deep learning. It might assess a surface level and it really is more around rote memorization or what I figured out in many cases. Uh, and matter of fact, I think all of us grew up with this of playing what I call the multiple choice game. Eliminate a couple of the answers that you're not sure of and then take a quote unquote educated guess. Educated guests are not learning. That's an educated guess. Now, the other thing 
is allowing for opportunities for reflection, revision, and reassessment. Because here's my thing with grading, which is I'm going to examine in that blog posting series that I really find problematic with grading. And in fact, Holly and I have talked about this, and I have plenty of personal stories on how grades are used as a punitive measure. It's kind of a way of gamifying the classroom. If you don't do something I like, then I'm going to punish you for doing it. So, for example, if I've done an essay and going by your your measures, Nadia, let's say I get a one on it. You're going to give me an opportunity. You're going to give me mm-hmm. feedback and give me an opportunity to say, here's what you did that is aligned with the mastery standards that I have set for this. Here are the areas for improvement. Now here's your opportunity to make those improvements and then resubmit this assignment. Because ultimately that's the whole point. Is it learning or is it playing a game of I gotcha? Oh, you didn't do it. You got a zero. Parents don't understand resubmit. They don't know what that means because they grew up in a world where it was punitive and you had to have it in on time and that was it. Correct. And this is the whole point of this episode is what's next and doing things differently. Because ultimately, again, I have plenty of personal stories where non-academic factors in the classroom were were influential in my end grades. So, for example, you mentioned good trouble. There were many instances, especially when I was in grad school, where I questioned some of the research that the professor was citing. And I cited my own classroom teaching experience as a an example of that research is incomplete, inconsistent, or isn't representational of what it's like for me right now, day to day, teaching in an urban classroom in the second largest school district in the country. Now what happens? What should that be? That should be, okay, let's engage in dialogue and meaningful discourse to understand what areas of the research are practical and what areas of the research require further examination. What happened? No, it was, no, the research says this and too bad for you. And then, of course, what did I know was going to happen by the time I reached the end of that that quarter? Oh, she's going to mark my grade down. And sure enough, that's exactly what she did. So when you go to standard-based grading, you ultimately separate non-academic factors from the academic grade as well. Well, exactly what you're talking about in in providing this cultural relevance, right? That's exactly what you're talking about is cultural relevance. And this allows us when I'm, you know, this year when I'm trying to do standards-based grading, it goes hand in hand with the idea of decolonizing the curriculum. And I'll give you an example. If, you know, students are reading The Great Gatsby, for example, and for years, this book has been taught since I was in high school, since probably you all were in high school. Um, and let's say that the end of the book assessment is a multiple choice test. And it asks you, what does the green light represent? What does this you know, color in The Great Gatsby represent? What is right? So what is supposed to be measured is the standard of symbolism, right? We're assessing to see if students understand the symbolism in The Great Gatsby. But when we're talking about decolonizing the curriculum, I am not focused so much on do they know exactly what symbol means what in The Great Gatsby, but I can take that skill to another book for, for example, The Bluest Eye. And I can take that idea of symbolism in more than one book and say, how is the symbolism represented in multiple ways or in different ways with these two very different experiences from these two authors, right? So kind of going hand in hand with that idea of decolonizing the curriculum, uh, creating your own canon, not 
just teaching what we are quote unquote supposed to teach what, you know, these people for hundreds of years have decided that this is what makes good literature. So what you're talking about, Nadia, is something that's really important, and it's called transfer of knowledge. So transfer of knowledge happens when you can take something that you learn and apply it to a new and novel situation. Your new and novel situation is a great novel. <laughs> and when I say novel, I didn't mean that kind of novel, but by Toni Morrison. And and what we often fall short of in the education system is that we um, ask kids to tell us about the symbolism, but then we don't have the transfer of knowledge. Now, can you do it here? Now, can you do it here? Can you do it in your math class? Can you do it in science? Because everything is segregated and everything is supposed to be in its own little bundle. And we forget about that transfer of knowledge. And one of the things that we often do, too, is we fall into these traps that we have to teach these books at these times because I read uh, Scarlet Letter in 10th grade and gosh darn it, I think other kids should be reading that. And I have literally stopped teaching. um, I was, you know, volunteer eighth grade teaching, but uh, we, the school district is requiring that eighth grade teachers teach to kill a mockingbird. And the team teacher I was teaching with uh, wrote a donor's shoes to get some other books in. She wanted just mercy and, the hate you give so that she could teach. What are we learning in reading? We're learning comprehension. We're learning at looking between the lines for real meaning. We're looking at uh, when does an author manipulate our emotions using certain words? And that's what we're looking at. So why do we have to read To Kill a Mockingbird? And she got it approved. Uh, The parents contributed to this donor's shoes and the school district said, no. To Kill a Mockingbird is what we read in the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do next to get into some good trouble? So here's what I you do to get into good trouble. At least in my district, this is the policy. But I don't know. You'll have to see what the policy is for your own district. But for us, in terms of board-approved texts, we are only allowed to teach the books that are board-approved to the whole class. So if every single one of my students is reading the entire text, it needs to be board approved. If I want to bring in a chapter from another book or if I want to bring in an article or if I want to just teach part, you know, one chapter of To Kill a Mockingbird and pair it with Between the World and Me or like you said, Just Mercy and think about asking the students to think critically about what they're reading. For us, Mm -hmm. my district, that's quote unquote allowed. Right. And so let's talk about that. Like, that's the good trouble that we, we, and I love that example that we need to tell teachers you've got to get into in 2021. Mm -hmm. Find that paired text. If you are having to read (laughs) The Scarlet Letter, which is about shaming women, you know, um, what can we do that shows women in, in strength? What can we read paired with that? And the look at the dialogue, the narrative, the words used. How did the, the author get that point across? Which is and, a standard, which is, the, which is, I think, reading literature six. I want to say it's standard six. I may be wrong. Um, but, but looking at the rhetoric, looking at how something is written, and that doesn't mean that I have to read it and say, this is a great book. Look at how it's written. You can ask the students, why is a Black character being portrayed this way? How does this compare to how all of the other Black characters in books that you've read show up? Um, Students will bring up Of Mice and Men. That's one of the required books for ninth grade for us. And when we're reading that book, there's a lot of discussion and critical 
you know, examination on the part of the students. And I want to ask them, hey, what did you think about the the character of Curly's wife? And they bring up the fact, well, does she even have a name? And I say, no. What about the, the the black character in the book? Oh, the one who also doesn't have a name and is disabled and excluded, right? So let's talk about those pieces instead of, you know, what, what I'm supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to be teaching, which is look at how the poetry of the, you know, the prose and whatever is written in Steinbeck, where I can say, okay, well, let's look at James Baldwin and, and look at the same even better instance of prose and and like you were saying how the writing is manipulated to make a reader feel something right so taking the skills from the standards and applying them to these not only new and novel but also relevant and transformative texts for students so i'm an english teacher that loves me some james baldwin I don't want to say anything about wrong or bad about James Baldwin, but I find that James Baldwin is in every example of where we teach a different voice yeah. and every white teacher goes to James Baldwin every time. And I want to put out in this good trouble that if you are a high school teacher or honestly, even a middle school teacher, do not let your child leave this uh, education system without having read Toni Morrison. And guess what? There's probably a good chance that you haven't read Toni Morrison. So get into some good trouble and go get yourself uh, Beloved or The Bluest Eye or Jazz and make sure that your your kids get to hear from one of the greatest writers of the 20th century and not the same novels that you read. You all are mentioning authors that I personally love. I would add to that list Richard Wright and Langston Hughes. I remember... In my AP American Lit class in high school, speaking of good trouble, I was constantly getting in good trouble. I was getting in bad trouble. It depends on what the trouble is. But (laughs) ultimately, I remember urging, pleading with my American Lit high school teacher that I wanted to be able to read more of Langston Hughes in class. And of course, it was not part of the district approved, district assigned, or literary canon list. And I think you just brought up something that kind of connects to what Holly shared earlier and then really kind of connects to all of this is if you are forced to assign one of those texts, then that's when you want to get into the idea of reimagining how you assess those texts. So one of the things that I've shared with a lot of educators who are forced to teach To Kill a Mockingbird, which, by the way, 2021, I'm not going to, I'm going to remove more of the filters of my language. I'm going to say, if you teach To Kill a Mockingbird and you have students of color in your class, you are damaging those students right now. I'm putting it out there. You're damaging the students right now. And if you don't agree with me, then I'd happily have a conversation on how that text damaged me as a 17-year-old teenager. I have a lot of of stories of how that book or how the book is taught in class has damaged. Correct. Correct. So I can uh, listen, this is not theoretical. This is not research. This is my actual experience. Now, with that being said, reimagining assessment First of all, I love Nadia's idea of connecting and and Holly's idea of connecting other texts to the reading. That's that transfer of knowledge, which I don't think is stressed enough, by the way, Holly, is a transfer of knowledge. I've got two stories to share real quick. One is the use of symbolism. I used to do a whole section. Granted, it wasn't reading. It was film 
on symbolism in film. And one of my favorite movies to use, especially back then, was The Matrix. And I would have the students look at, watch the film, and I would have them watch the film, and I would ask, notice how color is used in the film. Look at all the different ways color emphasizes or enhances the story. So if you go watch that movie, if you're if you haven't seen it, I don't know who hasn't seen it. It's an amazing film. But if you watch it again and watch it only from the standpoint of how the cinematography uh, is used and the color is used to augment the story that subconsciously we put together in our head, that is one way to do a transfer of knowledge with students to say, how can I take something that is culturally relevant to you right now, a film, a story, a real life event, clothing, musical artists, how does symbolism play a role in your consumption of this content and how does that connect to something that you are reading? You see, that's how you can make it more, again, culturally relevant because it has to be contextual. And then adding to that, I will say that even something like To Kill a Mockingbird, the reimagining of assessment, I tell teachers, if you have to teach it, here's the first question I would ask. How come Tom has no agency in that story? What does it mean for someone to have their own agency? How does your own agency play into your own empowerment? What resources and access and opportunity do you need to fulfill your own empowerment that gives you your own agency? Why is that missing from that story? What existed in that time frame and in that geographical location that denied Tom access to his own agency? Why was his legal representation a white male? Were there any other black attorneys uh, in that geographical location at that time? What might have existed? Or women, for that matter, too. Or yes, women. But you see, this is where, again, going back to Holly's reference of transfer of knowledge and reimagining assessment. If you are forced to work within that box, then there are ways to maneuver within that box that are different than what you've done before now. And that is how you get into the use of the digital tools and the ways in which you reimagine assessment that puts more of the empowerment of learning back into, or at least into, the hands of the students, and then now connect that to the mastery grading. So for me, if I were doing that, I would grade it on how do you examine voice? How do you examine empowerment? How do you connect what you've read to your own voice and your own empowerment? What conditions are necessary to do that? And what are the ways in which you can represent that? That is how I would assess students in that capacity. Sounds like you're talking about windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors, right? Seeing yourself and how you connect into that that piece of literature. And in order for that to happen for the majority of our students, we need to change what we're teaching. Right now, the the only mirrors that students are seeing in our curriculum are if they are part of that dominant culture. And in most cases, white and male. Uh, yes, it's definitely dominant culture. But as a girl, what kind of mirror was I seeing in Scarlet Letter? I'm seeing women who are doing bad things. Where's the woman who's the lawyer? Where's the woman who is whatever? So so this, uh, we've got to really think about those messages that are being portrayed in the things we have board approved. Who was mm -hmm. on that board? You do. It does require, it requires further interrogation, examination, 
disrupting, and then ultimately, ideally, dismantling. And to your point, Nadia, hat tip to Dr. Debbie Reese, Dr. Rudin Sim Bishop, and Emily Style for coming up with the concept of the mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. Right. Side note to educators that are listening, cite your sources. <laughs> we have to do that because if you don't, here's the thing, like real talk, if you don't cite your source and you're silencing those individuals, and I think it is important for us to do that mm-hmm. because- and and this is a hypothesis that I have. A lot of the sources that don't get cited tend to come from backgrounds that are historically marginalized, pushed to the margins, and or oppressed. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea here, to your point, Holly, is if you're a student in my class and I have an understanding of mirrors, windows, sliding glass doors, I understand the importance of making meaningful cultural connections to the curriculum. I'm embodying a mindset of decolonizing the curriculum, and I want my learning environment to be inclusive and asset-based, i.e. safe for you, I probably won't use a scarlet letter, or I would, would, if I'm forced to do it by the district, then I'm going to say, how would you rewrite this story so that you are empowered within whatever is identified as a social norm there. You see, if I'm forced to do it, then I'm still going to do it in a way that you could say that I want you as a learner to say, I now can identify the problematic things in the story. And if I were to rewrite this story, here's how I would write it. That's consistent with the timepiece, but is from my perspective of empowerment and asset base rather than all the litany of things we could identify that are problematic with that. And that goes back to your original statement, the transfer of knowledge, the reimagining of assessment. And here's the key I'm I'm using because I love what you shared at the beginning. The way you reference or represent your learning and that rewriting of that story, I'm going to give you I'm going to say you have multiple options to do it. You could write it. You could record it. You could film it. You could do all of the above. The whole point is we have a plethora of digital tools, ideally course, let's go to digital equity, but ideally we have a plethora of digital tools at our disposal, and I'm not going to tell you which tool to use. I want you to identify how might I best represent my voice and my learning in a way that shows that I have reached, quote unquote, mastery in understanding of the content and rewriting the story so that my teacher has a window into my learning. See what I did there? Yeah, you use the word mastery instead of proficiency. I saw. Yeah, I kind of whatever. I'm wondering, and I, you guys aren't prepared for this, but I'm wondering if mastery is one of those terms that's used to keep kids down. Because nobody, we've talked about this in episode six. Nobody masters fractions when you're nine. So if I'm a teacher who wants to be punitive against certain individuals, gosh, I can really make that mastery word work for me. But proficiency is is much less punitive. So I worry about that. We all know I don't, I don't think that I'm even a master in what I'm asking the students to do, especially if I ask. We just started reading a new book. We read a, a young adult book with LGBTQ characters called I'll Give You the Sun by Jandy Nelson. And I asked the students, what do you think the symbolism is? What do you think the theme is? Really, really open-ended. I didn't want to do it how, you know, generally that we've done it and say, here's what this represents or pay attention to this piece. That's important, right? Ask them, what do you think comes out? 
And all of the things that the students were sharing, I was sitting here on my computer like, yes, yes, that's amazing. I didn't even think of that. Right. So I like the, the episode that I was in, mastery shouldn't be our goal. It's about that process of learning. And I'm even learning from my students every single day. And when we. Okay. So I, I have to share a thought here because I know you two are English teachers. What you two are examining that I hope the audience will gain from this is the nuance of language. And this is why I love language. And in fact, for those of you listening, we had our conversation before recording. And one of the things that Holly shared that I'm in full agreement with is the power of reading really helps you learn the use of words, the use of words in context and the way to communicate through words. So what I want to share is the following. Proficiency is actually a synonym for mastery. But think about the end effect if you use the word mastery versus the word proficiency. See, this is the nuance of language. For example, I could say I'm tired or I could say I'm exhausted. Those are technically synonyms, but they have a totally different meaning. And this goes back to what we shared in a previous episode where I talk about asset-based language and even in the context of what we're examining here. Think about the words and the impact that that word has. And if I'm a teacher in a classroom right now, I'm using proficiency rather than mastery because I know mastery generally tends to imply that you've reached an end result, i.e. you're the master at this, rather than you are proficient at it, which means you have the knowledge, the skills, and the understanding to demonstrate and share or or, um, essentially show what you've learned. So Ken, I'm obsessed right now with Limitless Mind by Joe Bowler. I'm reading it for a second time because I'm putting together an assessment course, actually. And in it, she talks about the fact that um, that kids have a limitless mind, but we put them in these limits. And I think mastery is that limit as well, because once you've mastered it, you're done. It feels like a four-point rubric. Oh, I I'm, I'm, did whatever. But if I'm proficient, I, it just means I can learn more now. I'm proficient with the ability to go on. And so I, I know that I'm never this little crusade that like I'm on about the word mastery is never going to get further than the, the people who listen to me every once in a while. But it's so important to me that we look at this. Um, it's all about the semantics of that word. I have semantics OCD and I don't mean to, but, but I know that that word can be used to hold students back. And I know a, a teacher who has not worked with a certain population of kids will use that word to keep certain kids at mastery and other kids quite aren't quite there yet. I've seen that. Listen, I've seen that I've seen that word weaponized in schools that serve oppressed and marginalized student populations. You haven't reached mastery. You're two grade levels below. You're X grade levels below. You haven't mastered it. You haven't mastered it. I've seen it weaponized. And here's the thing to also consider. How are the words or how is the terminology used within local context? And this is where I get into a whole another thing that may be another episode on how we truly assess the performance of schools. Like, seriously, I know. Well, th- this might be a write up or maybe we'll do a special episode because ultimately this is this is how my brain works. And this is actually in my book that I'm working on that will be published in 2021 is when you think in terms of schools, because we're talking about student performance, but let's even extrapolate that to school performance. When you rate a school, what are you rating the school on? Because I would argue 
that a student that shows degrees of proficiency in one zip code may actually be mastery for where they live, but not necessarily in comparison to a student in a school in a different zip code. And so that's why I think the nuance of this language, I love the word proficiency and I love what you're saying because proficiency means I've reached a certain point of which I am proficient at this particular time, but it still allows room for growth and continued learning. Think about it from the standpoint, if I'm a student in your class and I want to play that game, I can say, I don't have to do any more work because you said I've reached mastery. Yeah, same here. (laughs) I would have been that guy, but yeah. What you said, Ken, is so crucial, and it really points out how arbitrary grading is to begin with. We all know that an A in my class means something different than an A in my next-door classroom neighbor's class, which means something totally different in a district 20 miles away. So the fact that grading is so arbitrary to begin with that – And the kids are, and the parents are so intent on what do I need to do to get an A? What do I need to do to get an A? And I really want to tell them A's are fake. Grading is fake. It's so arbitrary. And this goes back to obviously what, you know, everything that I was talking about in episode six, but how arbitrary it is that we're sticking, we're adhering to this system that is not benefiting students and is not even consistent or effective to begin with. So as we end this episode, I want to ask you guys, how can you and how can teachers get in good trouble in 2021? And I'll start so you know what I'm talking about. For me, I'm going to get in good trouble by I'm going to fight the word mastery. I'm not going to give up. If it offends people, I'm going to just keep on the crusade that that word is a little problematic. Find people in a few places along the way. Maybe it'll help some students somewhere. And I'm also going to get in good trouble as an educator by bringing in that other text. So if I'm forced to read To Kill a Mockingbird, I'm going to go find that other text that will help kids see a different narrative about that about that population. And if I don't know a, another text, that's an indicator to me that I've got some self-work to do. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. My good trouble looks exactly like that, Holly, creating your own canon, encouraging teachers to think outside of what we have been told is acceptable or valuable literature that excludes so many groups of people and reflects so many of our students. So creating our own canon, helping newer or maybe teachers who haven't gotten in so much good trouble as I have um, in finding those other opportunities to diversify the voices that we're teaching, encourage students to criticize everything they read, everything that they read, and really try to apply value across authors and experiences instead of what we've been told. Um, My last thing that I'm going to continue getting into good trouble is keep creating these hyperdocs, encouraging students to have a voice in their own education and pursuing things that interest them and are relevant to themselves. And you can find those hyperdocs on NadiaRazzi.com if you're interested. I have a couple of different ones, but um, yeah, I've gotten in a lot of uh, good trouble over the years. So 
I really love the fact that you two keep citing that phrase from the late John Lewis. I should add for the audience that I had the privilege of working with two other educators, Dr. Natasha Rachel and Felisa Ford, who are also co-authors of a book, The Microsoft-Infused Classroom with Holly. We did a lesson plans using Minecraft. The theme of the lesson plans is good trouble. We did a whole lesson plan on John Lewis and the use of that phrase, good trouble, around social movements and social justice. So it is available at Minecraft EDU, and there are other lessons uh, that will be out over the course of the next several months. So please keep an eye out on the social media. I know that if you have a Minecraft EDU account, they're freely available for you to download. I think for me, ultimately, the key here is the three areas for everyone to consider. Pre-pandemic, how are you using technology? And of course, this makes an assumption you had access, but how are you using technology? How was that providing access to learning? And how was that providing access to the content in which you use for learning? Because ultimately, we cannot go back to what was. I, I like to share that the pandemic has served as both a burden and a type of liberation for education in general. The burden is you now have seen what many of us have seen and been talking about for years, and you can't unsee it. But the liberation is you now see it for what it is. And you can't you can't fix a problem until you name it for what it is. And part of the enduring problems that we've examined this episode are a byproduct of things that have been normalized. And it's time for us to decolonize the curriculum, examine what was normalized, ask yourself what was effective, what wasn't effective. And here's a key question. You can't go back to what was. How do you know what is effective and what isn't? How are you reexamining your own assessments? How are you reflecting on your own teaching? And as Holly even just shared, your own learning. And ultimately, once you identify that, you can hopefully, that's a segue towards identifying what your purpose is and how tip to Simon Sinek, but ultimately what your why is. Why do you do what you do? And what is the purpose behind doing that? So in conclusion, from my part, I really hope that this podcast episode series has served as a degree of liberation for all of you who've listened. As you can see, the three of us are very passionate about this content. We're very passionate about teaching and learning, and we really just want to see things change in a direction that I like to say is around equity, which means that all students' needs are met, they're seen, they're heard, they're loved, and they're given the opportunity to realize their full potential. Before we end, I just got to give a shout out to Disrupt Texts. We love you. Amen to that. We want to take a moment and say thank you to our sponsor, Book Creator. Book Creator is an incredible app to use in a blended learning classroom as it allows students to do more than create books, but interact with their learning. Check them out at app.bookcreator.com. It's definitely one of my favorite applications for teaching and learning in the classroom. Teaching and learning in the pandemic has definitely made us rethink what assessment should look like in the digital age. For more help, download your free assessment toolkit at infuse.link forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Teaching and Learning in a Pandemic. 
This is a limited series that will disappear in early 2021, so make sure to listen to all the episodes before they're gone.